welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star. Mailbag! <laughs> you can do it without blowing out people's speakers, you know. I don't think I can. <laughs> I always have to, like, decrease your volume by about five decimal points. <laughs> Ah, <sighs> oh, yes, folks. Welcome back to another mailbag episode. I think last week we said, hey, there won't be one for a couple of weeks. And then we realized, oh, we missed someone when we were talking about translation. And we, we thought, did. oh, well, you know what? We better acknowledge that Jane actually sent us an email on this very topic. Yes. So last week we talked about translation on the mailbag and as soon as we finished recording, I was like, wait, I'm sure. And then, yep, there's Jane's email. So I want to mm -hmm. read something that Jane wrote in that ties directly into our mailbag topic from last week. And okay. also apologize that Jane had to wait an extra week for us yes. to respond. Okay, so um, <laughs> Jane says in her email, I think it's super that you're hoping to read more translations. I'll confess that I'm a bit biased, though, since I'm studying translation, which, by the way, so cool. Uh-huh. I'm sure you're already aware, but in the Western Anglophone world, translations only make up a teeny tiny percentage of literature available, where in other markets, translations make up a much larger percentage. It all makes me think about how much we're missing out on. Very keen to hear some great conversation about YA in translation from Jane. Okay, so this is like a direct like reflection of what we talked about last week, but a mm -hmm. point that we totally missed, right? Yes. Yeah. It, it's one of those things where we read the email. Clearly, <laughs> it was on the back of our minds. And then we failed to attribute that Jane had already cued us to this fact. And also that we were probably like plagiarizing her liberally. <laughs> <laughs> but it's such a better way of saying it too, which is another reason why I'm glad we included this in uh, a mailbag episode. Because yeah, like you don't really think about it, but obviously... If you have access to primarily English language text because you are first language English, then mm -hmm. there is so much like more abundance because publishing in terms of like the big money part of publishing is totally right. dominated by players in the UK and the US, right? So like, of course, that if you are a primarily like German language speaker or a primarily Dutch language speaker, if you're looking for books in a country where English is not the first language, then like, yeah, international juggernauts are still international juggernauts in other languages, right? Like, it's mm -hmm. always wild to me that like, what's his name? That James Patterson guy, like he dominates oh, the bookshelves everywhere, not just in English language countries. And so yeah, like, of course, you spend much more time reading books in translation, if you live in a non English speaking country, but like, I'm an idiot. And it didn't <laughs> occur to me that that's like just like a percentage thing. Yeah, I mean, so one of the things this is sort of tying in and sort of like bridging us into a potential new topic. So if I stray too far, let me know. <laughs> but one of the things that I was shocked about when Brian and I lived in Australia was that the prices of books was way, way, way higher. Mm. And in part, that was because it was more expensive to ship physical copies to Australia from like, say, North America compared mm -hmm. to other places. And I think the other piece was that it was more expensive to do a translation, potentially. And then, you know, they had like different size formats. So a lot of books were released there in trade paperback, not paperback. Mm -hmm. So everything was just like that much more expensive. And all I could think of was, well, this is a huge detriment to reading. Like even the public library in the smaller town that I lived in, because I lived in Newcastle, a couple of hours north of Sydney, 
you know, the public library system was actually okay around that city, but I actually had to pay to request a hold from another library outlet to cover the costs of moving it between locations. So for me, that was easy because I was like, oh, it's a dollar. It's not that big of a deal. But if you were on a fixed income, Mm. that immediately would be like, oh, well, you can now only read books that are available at your local library because we're not going to pay that surcharge. Gosh, it really makes you think about how barriers emerge to reading and to Mm -hmm. access to books. I think it's a good point. You know, when I was a kid, we've talked about this before, but I spent a lot of time in the UK and I was always like super delighted by the cost of books in Britain because it was a lot less than in Mm. Canada. They also had really funny formats, like the covers just always looked very different to me. And they so, you know, when you're a kid, it's just like, ooh, it's strange, right? Mm -hmm. And I think I've told this story before, but I used to love getting the Babysitter's Club books when I was in the UK because they were all edited to make sense to British kids. So like, Claudia Kishi keeps a stash of crisps in her room. (laughs) (laughs) Which is funny, right? It it kind of brings me back to the conversation that we had around some of the edits to update books, right? And you've told the story in the past where there were deliberate efforts in, I think, particularly wartime. Like I think when we read A Tree Grows in Brooklyn, we talked about how the book was formatted in a different size to make it easier for people to carry around in Pockets. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's where pocketbooks come from, right? We didn't have a need for the pocket paperback before we wanted to send books to soldiers, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it is so interesting how our cultural contexts shape what we have access to. But yeah, this was just a big, like, derp moment from last week's mailbag <laughs> that, like, yeah, there's just this issue of, like, the percentage of what you have access to. And I think mm-hmm. all of these other things we're talking about, like, I, it's so easy to assume that the context in which you live are the context in which everyone lives. And that's mm-hmm. not never true. true. Just not true. No. <laughs> no, not true at all. And obviously, I gave some homework at the end of last week's mm. mailbag, asking people to tell us their kind of shortlist of creatives for whichever country they identify with. Mm-hmm. I'm going to specifically call Jane out here because she was the one who wrote in the email. There was the mention of like certain places have higher numbers of translations and certain places have lower. I would love to get a quick rundown of what those countries are so that we have a better understanding of like if you're looking for high translation countries, like Mm. these are the places where you're going to be able to find them. And even if there's a reason why that is, I would love to know. It sounds fascinating. I mean, it's got to it's got to relate right to like, the size of a linguistic minority in a region Mm -hmm. and the size of publishing infrastructure. Like I remember when I was in Wales teaching, it was so fascinating to see I've used the word fascinating like 10 times. Let me rephrase it. (laughs) Because it is fascinating. (laughs) It is fascinating. I loved looking for well, books by Welsh authors, right? Because mm. that's something I always do when I'm anywhere. I'd like to know, you know, what local writers write about. But also looking for books in Welsh and this vibrant, Ooh. like, publishing scene for the Welsh language that is supported by this very, very small population of Welsh language speakers. Mm. Like, I just thought mm-hmm. that was so cool, too. But also unlikely to see a lot of translations into Welsh, I would imagine, because most Welsh speakers also speak English. So like, Mm -hmm. there's so many dynamics around this and whether whether making a translation is like a quote unquote worthwhile bet from like a business perspective. Yeah. And I guess to to bring it back full circle, you know, you mentioned James Patterson. And when we were having (laughs) these conversations, I was thinking about the kind of proliferation of authors and texts 
even in something where we're literally talking about it in transit. Like I was thinking about who do you see in airports and buses and train stations if they exist in your country still. Um, But I always think of like, yeah, you know, you see Daniel Steele, Clive Cussler, James Patterson. uh, Dan Brown. Dan Brown. Dan Brown. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) And I wonder, right, because in some ways these are not the best representations of what well, they're they're mass market uh, intended for, you know, almost beach read or like you could read this on the plane and you might make your way through most of the text and so on. But it's kind of fascinating if you think about it, like somebody traveling through, say, Canada stops for a layover in an airport. Which kinds of books are they going to see mm-hmm. if they're looking in a, a bookshop or a collectible or something like that? God, would they see Canadian books at all, depending on what city they landed in? total question mark right and that's fascinating right like in a way it's a bit of cultural imperialism where we're saying these people are most important and or we think these people will sell the best (laughs) yeah mostly the latter (laughs) Mm -hmm. but um yeah i don't know uh if anything else has come out of this topic for this this was sort of a hastily put together mailbag episode (laughs) mostly just because we needed to apologize to jane Thanks for writing in, Jane, and we're sorry.